Well, it's my privilege again to uh, welcome you, particularly if you're visiting for the first time or from another church. It's Springbank holiday, and I know we get visitors, and our people go and visit. And if you're visiting from another church, please do just take a greeting with you back to your home church. But, but you start at the beginning of a new series, and I'm excited about this series. It's based about, around what, uh, what, what many call the Beatitudes. You know, if you're a Christian and you know a little bit about Christianity, you'll know that Jesus preached this great thing called the Sermon on the Mount, and there is in it a list of things, and we're going to be unpacking those things, and amongst church people, they've become known as the Beatitudes, and we're going to look at them from that perspective of a blueprint, and I'm also, just as an aside, I'm delighted that we're going to be welcoming a new uh, member of the preaching team for this series, Denise Gray, I see her sat there, Denise, just stand up and do a twirl. So this is Denise, so bless her. She's up next week and scared. She looks like a rabbit caught in the headlights, so pray for her, you know? And, uh, and so I'm excited about this series. And uh, it's been something that I wanted to preach for a while, actually. One of the things about the Sermon on the Mount is that actually it's one of those portions of Scripture that uh, transcends Christianity itself. You know, two or three times in the course of my life, I've met people who are not professing Christians, but they've said to me something along the lines of, well, I always try and do the Sermon on the Mount. If we all did the Sermon on the Mount, then we'd get on so much better. That's a very curious statement because as I read it, it scares the living daylights out of me. As I study it, it's challenging, it's earth-shattering, it turns everything upside down. And Maybe we would get along a lot better, but I, that's not the first thing that springs to my mind. But my point is this, that this Sermon on the Mount is something that Jesus taught and uh, is challenging, and it's part of his manifesto. Uh, except that it was not a manifesto that was compromised in the working out as some sort of coalition was worked out with the world and the real world, it is still his manifesto today. And it is what the church of Jesus Christ, of which we are one small part, has been caught up into. I want to begin by telling you a little story by way of illustration, really. Uh, I, I, I honestly don't know whether it's going to help or not, but it was just something that I couldn't get out of my head. And it's, it's a little story which I'll call my dad's cravat, which is self-explanatory as I get into it. But... I uh, was born in the 50s and grew up in the 60s and I remember this curious occasion as I think across my childhood as we all do, you have various family memories which mean something to the family but probably not a lot outside of that. But I remember this occasion where my father, and I believe it must have been a Saturday because he worked very hard but he did try and be home on Saturdays. My father one Saturday was going to watch the rugby and my mother was going out to do some shopping and he turned to my mother and said, would you get me a cravat? Now, some of, who knows what a cravat is? Well, some of us don't even know what a cravat is. It's, if you uh, look at 60s movies, very often the suave gentlemen have this kind of curious thing stuffed around their neck. It's called a cravat. Very fashionable in the 60s. And he said to my mother, my father said to my mother, would you mind getting me a cravat? And he gave her some money. Well, about an hour and a half, two hours later, she came back, and he was quite excited. He said, did you get me a cravat? And her face fell. And she said, I completely forgot. And what made it worse, she went on to say, I wondered why I had so much money in my purse. (laughs) 
And my father was an incredibly affable guy. It, nothing would shake him. He was very bright, intelligent, and all the rest of it. But he spent four years in a Japanese prison of war camp. And quite frankly, after that experience, nothing shook him. But for the first time, and this is probably why I remember it, because it was unusual, he kind of lost it. He said, flipping it, da-da-da-da-da. You know, I give you the money, and you go out, and you come back, and you've not only not got the cravat, but you've spent my money too. And he had a little hissy fit. Threw his toys out the pram. And it, it sticks in my memory to this day. I remember then my mum went into a bit of a panic and she got my sister and myself together and said, look, she said, look, look all over the house, look in pots, under beds, if you can find any money at all, let's bring it all together. And so we all went over the, the house and I remember I found about seven pence, old money, you know, those of you who remember that, in a kind of a dusty trinket pot at the back of the wardrobe and I brought it and she was delighted. Anyway, we scrimped and got this money together and gave it to my father and my father kind of broke something. It wasn't enough but he realised it was all a bit silly. But it left a strong impression on me. And that impression was basically two things. One was adults get worked up over the silliest things And number two, when I grow up, I'm going to have a cravat. <laughs> and as a teenager, you know, I was the only boy in Twickenham wearing a cravat. <laughs> Everybody else was wearing hipsters and sort of pop art shirts, and I was wearing a cravat. <laughs> I thought, they'll catch up. Well, it'll catch on, it'll catch on. Well, after, when I got to about the age of 16 and I gave up, it wasn't going to catch on. I just looked like a nerd, you know? <laughs> I won, I lost, you know, you've got to know which battles you're going to lose, and I was losing the fashion stakes wearing a cravat at 16. But we do get worked up about things. We begin to fixate on things, we begin to dream about things, and I suppose I want to start by asking you, do you have a dream? By pure accident, by pure accident, I came across and listened to the great Dr. Martin Lloyd, uh, uh, not Jones, Luther, Martin Luther King. And his I have a dream speech. I mean, he referred to it on a number of occasions, but the one I heard was when he was in Washington, a huge great civil rights rally. It lasts about 15 minutes. We probably all are aware of the fact that Martin Luther King preached a life-changing, seminal, historic sermon. And I'll say that because he was a Baptist minister. It is something, actually, that you should listen to. And two things struck me about it. One was that it was clear, because he spoke with passion, that he had a dream. He dreamt about liberty and freedom. And the other thing that leapt out was a phrase where he said that Every American has the inalienable right, the, the self-evident right to pursue freedom, justice, and happiness. He coined that phrase, the pursuit of happiness. Now, it's not particularly unique, but I fancy he might have been the first. And that... Because I was struck by that and the coincidence of it all, and I'm sure it was the Lord sort of wanting to infuse something in, in my reflections upon Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, but, but part of it was, was this question, do you have a dream? Now hold that thought for a moment. 
Because as I think I mentioned last week, Flissie and I are enjoying a series that's been on the TV called Mad Men. It's all about the birth of the advertising industry in America. And of course, what you, what you get from that after several series and all the rest of it is that in advertising, you're selling a dream. And they were very focused about, we need to sell the dream. First of all, get their attention. Second, or, second of all, create a felt need for something that possibly they don't need. And thirdly, offer a way of fulfilling that need. And I, I don't know if any of you are in advertising, but maybe that's a similar sort of manifesto, if you like, for advertising to this day. And so I was thinking about the pursuit of happiness and Martin Luther King's dream, and I was thinking about the way we do advertising and we try and create felt needs that we have to then have, we have to go out and buy, we have to consume. And in all of this, I was shaking my head and saying, God, what's this, what's this to do with anything? And I felt like the Lord was saying that we've, we've forgotten what we were looking for. How many of you have ever done this? You've, you've run upstairs, you're rushing around, you run upstairs and you go into your bedroom and you, suddenly you, you can't remember what it is you, you came up there for. Have I done that? Isn't that annoying? Now what was I looking for? What was I looking for? And you often you have to run down and then you repeat it all over again and then you, then you remember, don't you? Well, that, well that's, that was it. Right. But as the, I, I believe in the West... The trouble is we, we've forgotten what we were looking for. So people fill the gap for us, advertising, peer, friends, colleagues, all sorts of things come at us now. We know we need something, but we've forgotten what it was, and so people tell us what it was, and so we dutifully follow like sheep, trying to find out what it was we were looking for and how to find it. It's very strange. And as far as life is concerned, well, life, uh, uh, sorry, what was the question? We're not doing life anymore. We're just letting people pop things into our heads with a bit of a hook so that we remember it and then we kind of press along after it. You see, the way we're doing life is, is we're trying to... We're trying, we're trying to get something or attain something. It might be a Lamborghini. <laughs> it might be a boyfriend, a husband. It might be a good education. It might be any no of a number of things, many of them innocent and worthwhile to be truthful. But we kind of forgotten why we're doing it anyway. We're not pursuing happiness anymore. Nobody talks about happiness these days. Have you noticed that? We talk about what we haven't got and what we want to get. We fixate on the new patio or the new lounge curtains. We fixate on that promotion or this training or this education or that woman or that man. We fixate on these things. But the trouble is when you get them, you're not, you can't remember why you wanted them in the first place. Life. Sorry, what was the question? 
And actually, if, if we swim back upstream, and that's a, an expression that I've used quite a lot this year, we, we are in so many ways as Christians trying to swim back upstream, go back upstream to the source, we begin to come across a startling piece of truth. And that is this, that believe it or not, life is a gift to enjoy from a Father who is kindly and who loves us and wants us to be happy. You may never have thought that, that He is well disposed towards you. He, is, he has a kindly disposition. And the reason we don't think about it is that, quite frankly, we have an enemy who wants to, who wants to enslave us not to the pursuit of happiness, but to the pursuit of things further downstream, things that we think will meet that need, but we've forgotten what the need was. And when you begin to understand that, you begin to understand something about the way the world and our society works, and just how revolutionary Jesus' teaching is. So, for example, let me just read, uh, I was, this is a slight change in the way I was going to do it, but it'll work. Let me just read these, this little passage of Scripture, which is Jesus' teaching, beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and then I'll give you an alternative version. I just scribbled it this morning in three minutes, and you could do the same thing this afternoon. But let's just read this little passage. It's from Matthew chapter 4, skipping on a, a screen map, sorry about this. Matthew chapter 4 beginning at verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And news about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. And large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, the disciples, saying this, Wonderful news for the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Wonderful news, and so it goes on. But two things I want you to recognize there. First is that Jesus brought happiness and comfort and relief to the oppressed. That was the first part of the talk. Those who were suffering, he came and was good news. He made them happy. And then he teaches disciples the secret of happiness. Wonderful news. Sometimes it says blessed. Sometimes it says happy are those. But the world comes at a different angle. The world says things like this. Happy, blessed, if you like, are the rich, because money makes the world go round. Blessed are the beautiful, because they'll never be alone. Blessed are the powerful, because they can have it all. Blessed are the strong, because they don't take from no one. 
It took me two minutes to jo start jotting those down. These are the axioms of our age. This is the wisdom of the world we live in. This is what many of us spend our lives doing, seeking to attain, to get to that blessed place of being a beautiful person or whatever. But Jesus comes at it from a completely different angle. There are five little points I want to bring out of this first thing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first thing I want to say, it's good news, not good advice. You know, I've heard some people, and in fact, I even, I think I began my briefing to our preaching team, talking about the way that the, this little passage of Scripture in Matthew 5 is something of a progression. I'm not sure whether I really agree with that now. But I was going to teach it as good advice along the lines of, look guys, shape up, try and do this instead and it'll work for you. I don't think that's bad advice, but actually as I was studying this and reading various commentators and reflecting and praying about this, something began to dawn on me which was almost more revolutionary, more uncomfortable. Because this is not advice, Jesus is actually saying something about the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit... I, I think I have to say to you are those who are probably economically poor, the two-thirds world, if you like, those who have so little by the, by the standards of us in the one-third world. But, but I think we can stretch the point to say this, is that the poor in spirit are really those who know their need of God. I've been to India many times. Many of you have traveled and been to two-third world countries. And one thing that strikes me about the poor is that many of them are very religious. And they will say to you, if it were not for God, my family wouldn't be here. If it were not for God. They know their need of God. They're not leaning back on their good looks. They're not resting upon their, their money. They're not exercising their influence. They have nothing. And they lean on God. And what Jesus says is, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who are in that place. Those who, are, who have that quality and realization and have, have made that connection that it doesn't matter what we acquire or who we acquire, it's actually something more than that. Life is about dependence upon God. So the first thing is that this is good news, not good advice. Jesus is commenting on all of those, all of us, please God, who are in that place of saying, do you know, I got all these toys, but it, I'm still lacking. And God, I'm beginning to see that you are the sum of all my longings. And the Lamborghini is nice, and thank you for it. But you are the sum of all my longings. Jesus says that if you are in that place, or if you can dial that up, or if you can visit that place and discover that place, you are blessed, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Now, as we teach through this over the next three weeks, you will see that in the first part of each phrase, 
Jesus actually describes a very ordinary, everyday kind of condition that we can all relate to. But he kind of affirms it. And he says, but you guys, this is what God has for you. This is what God has for you. Let me just teach on a little bit. Next thing is, this whole teaching of Jesus is counterintuitive. I have it in me. I remember uh, I have four adult children now. Not one of them went to university. Man, they all attained by far and away the necessary grades, but for various reasons, they did not go to university. In fact, one of them said to me, Dad, I do not want to go to university. I do not want to begin my life with a degree in something I'm not interested and 25,000 pounds worth of debt. Thank you. That made me feel so uncomfortable. There was definitely something counterintuitive for me. That may not be an issue with you. But I wanted my kids to go on to university. And in my own little mind, the jury's still out. But that was something that they wanted to do. And Fliss and I, we just shook our heads. We said, we've got to entrust them to God. And please, God, may this work out. But this, the teaching of the kingdom held in the Sermon on the Mount is counterintuitive. I remember I was renovating an old boat, bought it for about three or 400 pounds, and finally finished this boat. And the, uh, Sam and I went out on it, first maiden voyage, and... I was appalled by the handling of this boat. It had a steering wheel, not a rudder. And we were bouncing off things. I couldn't get the hang of this thing. And I think Sam was about 10 years old at the, age, the time and suddenly said, Dad, it's back to front. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean it's back to front? I was a bit irritated and curt and short with him. He says, it's back to front. You've got to do the opposite to what you think you've got to do. And he'd worked it out. It's true, isn't it, Sam? And I'd wired up the kind of pulley levers the wrong way. So when we were careering towards some expensive-looking yacht, I tried to turn away but plowed straight into it. And so it went, went, you know, went, that's the way it went. But the weird thing was, once he told me that, and I realized that was true, I started doing it. And very quickly, I learned how to do the opposite of what I was expected to do. We can learn how to do the opposite to what we're expected to do. It's counterintuitive. Thirdly, this is Christ-centered. And time and again, you will hear in this teaching that the pursuit of happiness is all about Jesus. If you have Jesus in your life, if there is that Christ-centeredness in you, if you are pursuing the kingdom, suddenly it really doesn't matter if you're poor in spirit or grieving or struggling or going through any of these descriptions of Jesus. You know, we all go through tough times, but we begin to discover that actually our inner being at the state of our conscience, the state of our soul, is not dependent upon the Lamborghini glinting on the drive. It is all about the kingdom. Fourthly, this advice, which is not advice, this good news is for this life and not the next. 
Sometimes you've heard preachers fob the poor off. You're having a tough time now, but don't worry, when you get to heaven, boy, it's going to be glory, glory, glory. Actually, Jesus intends this for now. He's bringing in the kingdom now. The Lord's Prayer, he prays, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is for heaven. This is God's comment on what can be now. And fifthly, because I'm running out of time, I'm racing here, it's attainable. And this, for me, is the pearl in this teaching. It's for everyone. You see, I could say to my son Samuel, I don't care whether you want to go to university or not, I want you to be an astrophysicist. Get off there, son. We may have all sorts of uh, ambition for ourselves and for others. We may kid ourselves that if we get the big house on the hill or whatever it is, then we will be happy. Some of us, quite frankly, will get the big house on the hill because we're a pretty clever bunch, by and large. Some of us will, thank God, become astrophysicists and scientists. Thank God, we need you and God bless you. But the reality is this, that not, ev- not everyone with the, with, the, with the best will in the world will become that happy. But this good news, this teaching, is for everyone. If you're poor, if you grieve, if you're persecuted, if you're down in the dumps, if you're not beautiful. Wonderful news. This is for you. It's for everyone. Let's all stand. Let's have the worship team back up, please. Heavenly Father, as we begin this teaching, a teaching of what for many of us is familiar material, please, dear God, may we, may we begin to believe you. May we begin to gather the profundity, the extraordinary revelation that is held therein that Your wonderful news is for everyone, just where we are and what we are. And we pray as your kingdom comes among us, Lord God, that we'll truly know God's space, that you'll come and presence yourself and be our king, and that we will get a taste, more than a taste even, of heaven on earth. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus.